This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm your host. Today I'm talking to Randa Abdel Fattah, who is a, uh, a well-known author, academic, uh, as you might have seen her on your TV screens from time to time on shows like Q&A and The Drum. And, and have you been on The Project as well, Randa? Have you been on that one? No. You haven't no. been on that one yet? Okay. Now, Runda is a, uh, she's written fiction, she's written non-fiction, she holds a PhD from Macquarie University. Uh, her thesis on that was Islamophobia, uh, and out of that came a non-fiction book, Islamophobia and Everyday Multiculturalism. She's also written books such as Does My Head Look Big in This? and uh, When Michael Met Mina, which was his, her most recent uh, young adult novel. And I'm blanking on the other, oh, um, Where the Streets Had a Name, which is about mm. Palestine, is it? Which is where your family was originally from. How are you, Rhonda? You well? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. In this you. crazy time. Today, I thought what we'd do is talk to you and, and get you to chat with us about um, how you approach, I think in my email that I sent you, it was basically writing with a purpose. Because my, my idea behind story, the way I, I approach story is that your first obligation in writing fiction is that you tell a good story and all the other stuff or the message if you like has to be secondary to that but sometimes you're writing with a purpose where what you're trying to say is is the is the point and of course we're talking about things like in your case like social justice immigration and the big one for you the the middle east peace process and and palestinian place in that i suppose just not many to oversimplify but i guess that's probably a way to sum it up so where do we start with this idea of writing with a purpose? What's, what's your first approach? Well, it's an approach I think I've really learned along the way. So when I first started writing, um, and, and really I started writing and does my head look big in this when I was a teenager because, and it very much came out of the idea that I had a mission. I had a mission when I was 16 years old um, in the mid-90s um, to write a book about a young Muslim teenage girl her experiences and get my readers to walk in her shoes and understand the world from her point of view um, and humanize her because um, it was as basic as, and as, as, as tried as it sounds to humanize a person, um, an identity that was so dehumanized in media and popular culture and, and film. So that was my mission at that time. And because I wrote um, with the mission constantly in my mind, I wrote a book that was rejected by all the publishers I sent it to because it was um, so preachy and didactic. And um, as much as all the publishers I sent it to loved the idea of the book and, and the heart of what I was trying to do, they, they advised me to go away and um, rewrite it, focus on the writing and, um, and the character and the stories. And so I put that book aside when I was 16 um, and I, I left it and I picked it up again after 9-11. It was about 2003. Um, I had moved from Melbourne to Sydney and I realised that I could not approach my writing and all these big issues that I was so passionate about, you know, social justice and, and racism and Islamophobia and feminism and all these sorts of issues. I could not approach 
creative writing and, and, and writing fiction as though I was writing an, an, an op-ed or a non-fiction book. I had to put aside the, the sort of desire for people to, you know, this real a passion for people to break down these stereotypes, to talk back to, to racism. I had to put that aside and, and use it as um, sort of the fuel, but I had to focus um, on story. And ultimately, I think that that's what, what I love the most, actually, when I write the message falls away and what i actually fall in love with is the the world that i'm building the characters that i'm building and the little the little sort of moments in people's lives that actually walk you through what these big big issues of racism and social justice feel like on the ground in everyday life and i think that's now what drives me um i might have a big picture idea that i want to address what it's like to go up as a palestinian girl under occupation but that's just sort of the umbrella, um, you know, uh, sort of umbrella purpose. And then I dig down. My, my real aim is to take readers into those everyday spaces of life and, um, and get up close and personal with what it feels like to be a young girl living under occupation. And I think that's how you avoid being preachy. So it's interesting that you say that you were 16 when you first started writing that book. And I suppose this was also... Um, around about that time we've, we've spoken to Melina Marquetta as part of this podcast and, and yeah. Yeah, that was a timely book. And I suppose yours was probably not quite as timely at the time. I mean, it, it was as relevant as it ever was, but we talk about trying to create a zeitgeist. And in a sense, that book of yours, when it did came out, come out was probably a better time to come out than when you were so young anyway, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I think the irony of does my head look big in this, um, uh, is that when it was published, so in 2000, and Melina's book, when I wrote it in, when I was 16, her book, Looking Fairly Brandy, was actually on my keyboard perched up there. And I, Melina and I are good friends now, and we always laugh about that because her book was my inspiration. Penguin was actually my fir- the first publisher I approached because I thought, you know, that's where Melina published. So mm-hmm. it was a really big um, inspiration for me. But, yes, in 2005, um, it was... It, it was ripe for this kind of a story and it hadn't been done before. And so that, that was, um, yeah. And, and now, now that I've written the screenplay, the, for, for a feature film, what is so bittersweet is that we, we actually had to escalate and intensify the Islamophobia. And so going back to this issue or this point around purpose, um, my purpose in trying to dramatize does my head look big in this to a screenplay and reworking a novel into a screenplay um, was again to focus on the human stories, um, you know, under these big headlines of Islamophobia and, you know, white supremacy. But we had to actually change a lot in it because things are actually worse now than, they, than when they were when I first published it and when I first wrote the draft. You actually preempted my question because I was about to say when you said that you had to, in the screenplay, emphasise the Islamophobia or, or heighten it, if you like. What I was going to say is that because things are not as dramatic as they were, but obviously that's not the case. You're saying that things are worse than they've ever been. So what was your purpose in heightening the, the drama around those things? Was it simply because the reader couldn't feel it so they had to see it? Actually, it was it was a case of writing a screenplay where the events were happening in real time. And it's very surreal because you're writing something and then the next day, for example, writing the book and writing the screenplay, and we need, we had a scene where there's um, a rally 
and the main character is, um, you know, at, in the city and comes across this racist, um, anti-multiculturalism, anti-Muslim rally. And that was kind of happening at the same time with the Reclaim Australia rallies in 2015. And so what was happening was that every time we wrote a scene, things were getting worse in real time, in real life. And so we would go back and say, well, actually, we're, we're not, we're holding back here. We're, we need to actually tell it as it is. And, and there is a tendency sometimes to, to feel that maybe you're over-dramatising it. But when it came to the, the Islamophobia in the script, we were actually underplaying it and, and we were advised so many times by script editors, don't hold back because this is actually happening. You know, don't be scared that you're going to be seen to be too preachy here because this is actually happening in real life. And so a lot of the things that went into the screenplay were being were working off and bouncing off what was happening um, in real in real time. So imagining that the listener is a, is a 16-year-old or thereabouts who is wanting to write something with a deeply held opinion, for example, how do they, how do they avoid this didacticism? I mean, they, they may be asked to write a, a piece of creative fiction that deals with something, and that, that, that's a little simpler because you can go, I'm going to tell a story and just intersperse these, these themes. But if, if, if it's a more, more in an essay style of thing, how are they going to avoid that didacticism and still embrace the story? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. I think whether you're, I mean, all of this is about storytelling. Even when I write nonfiction, I'm still telling a story about the world, the way I see it, the way I interpret it. Um, I think the way you approach being didactic is in being really, really brutal with your editing, going back and reading what you're writing. Um, and that's a really important process to constantly go back and, and read it and think, am I being preached to? And I think a younger person, a teenager is going to feel that instinctively a lot more than somebody who's older because they have a BS and preachy radar <laughs> having two teenagers as myself. I can guarantee that. So if they read back on what they've written and feel, oh, that feels it's coming across as, you know, a teacher telling me how to think, then you go back and you edit and you edit. Um, when you write an essay or a nonfiction piece about an issue that is about social justice or, you know, human rights or about society, I think the important thing is to, there is still a story there. It's still about human beings interacting and relationships and, and the impact of wider, you know, decisions made by politicians and the media on, on people's lives. And that, whether you're fiction or nonfiction, that should be at the heart of any good piece of writing, I think. And so it's, it's constantly remembering that um, and good editing as well. How does a young person write about something that is outside of their experience? I mean, it's, it's tricky to, if, for example, uh, I mean, I, from my own experience, I wrote about the Rwandan genocide, but I wrote that alongside somebody who experienced it. How does somebody who is from a, well, let's go with an obvious example, someone from a, a white bread Anglo middle-class family, how do they write about the multicultural experience or the immigration experience or the refugee experience or whatever? How do they, how do, they do that, do you think? Is that something they should just steer clear of? Are we talking about in the context of classwork, something that's sure. been assigned to them? Yeah, okay. So, well, I think it's easier for us to deal with it if it's not assigned because if it's assigned, you have to do it. Right. Um, but I think it's a really good point. Um, what, what do we write about? Who do we write about? And, and I think anybody can write about anything as long as they are aware of the position that they're writing from. So, for example, I can put it back to myself. I'm a Muslim Arab 
um, and Arabs are sort of considered or perceived as the dominant Muslim culture when we know that Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. We know that black Muslims are constantly erased and ignored and sidelined compared to Arab Muslims. So I would never presume the position to be able to speak on behalf of black Muslims, for example. But if I was in a position in school where I had to say right about that, then I would do so from a from an understanding and appreciation that I'm not speaking on behalf of another person. I'm not speaking for them. I would do a lot of research. I would, um, and that's really important. A, a lot of the problems that we find when people speak and write over um, marginalised minority groups is because they haven't done the research. They presume sort of an arrogance in in speaking for other people. So I think it's just about any kind of sensitivity, the kind of sensitivity you need to understand the position and privilege that you're writing from. Um, and if you are required to write about an experience that is outside your own, then then research it. Don't and research it not through the pages of the Murdoch Press. You know, <laughs> research it through other reading the voices of people who are desperate to get their voices out there and often silenced and don't have their voice, don't have the platforms to have their voices out there. But there is a lot of counterculture, counter media, and it's an you know online spaces are great for that where there are journals and writing spaces and blogs um, where marginalized groups are writing so much. There's no way that we can say we, we don't have access to that sort of, um, those sorts of stories, read those stories and understand them. And I think then you can write more authentically, but yeah. always understanding that you're not writing for them. I, th I think the old, the old argument that oh, we didn't know it was happening is, is probably mm -hmm. long gone now, isn't it? We, we don't have that excuse anymore. Absolutely. And I mean, I, there are certain sort of uh, experiences that I wouldn't touch. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there's so much to write about. Um, and it's not because of political correctness or free speech. I mean, these sorts of things are just, I think, they're distractions from really about just respecting the fact that there are amazing people out there telling their own stories. So it's also being conscious that if I write something, am I taking up their space? And very often when you do look at the sort of dominant group, um, you know, white middle-class male, uh, writing about other people, they do take up space and, and that's, that's the problem. So I think for a young person, you shouldn't shy away from trying to empathise and, and walk in other people's shoes, but just be conscious, all of us, of what that means and, um, and, and the privilege and power that comes with that. You, you talked about if it's an assigned topic, but what if it's not? What if it's something that you just feel very passionately about? You're, because I, I know a lot of young people in you know, white bread, blue mountains, for example, who feel very passionately about the social justice stuff you're talking about. How do they write about that with any authenticity and, and how do they make their voice heard? Because even though it's not their experience, their voice deserves to be heard, their opinion deserves to be heard as part of a democratic society. So how does, yeah. how does somebody like that find authenticity and, and speak in a way that will be heard and understood as well? There's sort of two things I could say. The, the first is I, I think if you're a young person and you're passionate about um, using your platform and your privilege, um, if you're, say, a, a, a young white person, then just be conscious of how you do that. Are you going to take up space? Um, are you going to do it understanding that you're not writing for someone else, that you're, you're not inhabiting another person's experiences, though it's dress-ups, you know, it's, it's not an appropriation, that you actually understand that you're trying to do this from a certain position. But I think you should absolutely go for it. I think we need more of that. I know with some of my writing workshops, um, particularly around my current research, I go into schools and I ask students to write about 
what it would feel like to be a Muslim young person the day after a terrorist attack and, and you know, media headlines, um, you know, blaming all Muslims. How would that feel? And the most incredible stories came out of that from non-Muslim students who were actually, I was asking them to inhabit that, that space for a moment and, and imagine what it would be like. Um, and, and so that's what writing is about. That's what reading is about. Um, we need more of that. Uh, we just need it in a more critical way, I think. And the second thing is also audience is important. Understanding who is your audience. Why are you writing? Are you writing because you want to, um, you know, capitalise on on sort of uh, a moment where it's really cool to write stories from the margins or are you actually writing because your purpose is about creating, you know, social change and and is your audience other white people, people in, that you can influence in your circle? Um, so I think that's really important as well to, who are you writing for and why? I suppose the uh, the risky thing there is that you fall into whataboutism. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't quite get what that means, I guess the clue's in the word, but, um, you know, if a, a person of one majority group is talking about the experiences of a minority group, and they yeah, but that time that I walked down the street and such and such and someone called me this thing, how do you break, how do you get past that false equivalence of, of going, well, hang on, what you're experiencing is just one day of slight discomfort. Imagine that was every day. How, how do you break through that? I think that's just a process of us as activists, as educators, um, pushing back against those sorts of... Because what happens is you get, you get these sorts of criticisms that become catchphrases and, you know, what about arism and, um, you know, that's political, political correctness or, you know, you're stifling free speech. This is a particular moment in time where these things get repeated over and over again and they become these truths. I think it's just about us, um, you know, critically opening these sorts of statements and thinking, well, you know... The, that kind of idea, that argument of, of, of about whataboutism, it, it erases history, it erases people's experiences of constantly being marginalised and constantly being made to feel like the other. And that's, that's actually something that we have to do as a society. Our, our literacy around injustice needs to change. So we have to actually push back past the last week or the last month or the last year and look at history, that we are here because of a certain context and a historical context we're here and we have to deal with that and reckon with that and that's when people start to understand that and in my experience speaking to young people at schools as soon as they they are exposed to a longer history and understanding of why we are here why there are certain groups who are marginalized that whole what about what about it falls away because they realize it's actually bigger than that it's not a competition or a hierarchy i assume you're familiar with godwin's law which is uh, coined by mike godwin who and basically it is that over the course of an internet argument, um, the chances that somebody's going to get compared to Nazi Germany or Hitler is um, reduced yeah. to one. I mean, you know, we eventually get there. <laughs> Mike Godwin must be a little bit uncomfortable because we're reaching the point now where we can make these comparisons in many cases. We, we sort of mm. shy away from this idea that, oh, we can't compare it to Nazi Germany because that was, that was the gold standard in genocide and, and intolerance. And so when we start seeing Trump use terms like uh, the fake news, which is basically just another telling of Goebbels calling it the Jugend Press or the lying press. How do we get past this idea that, you know, we're not being extreme, we actually are concerned that the things that occurred in the 1930s in Germany are happening again? You know, we, in, in America, we're seeing this. We're seeing armed people walking into seats of government and standing there with guns and saying, we're not happy, where's our free speech? And, you know, well, you're exhibiting it very poorly. How do we approach that idea, do you think? 
we don't even have to go to America. We had Fraser Anning call for the final solution yes. in Australian Parliament in his, you know, first speech in the Senate um, in reference to Muslims. So, um, and then in New Zealand, Christchurch, you know, just the other day I was mentoring a student at university who's researching, she, she's researching race and Islamophobia online and white supremacy. She's also a gamer. She's um, a hijabi, but she has a different sort of um, avatar. So no one knows she's a hijabi. And so she's a really good gamer. So she's actually been, um, you know, playing some, some games where, the guys that she's playing with don't know she's Muslim and she's and she stumbled across the most horrific groups who were supporting Brendan Tarrant, the terrorist who, who massacred those Muslim worshippers. And she was talking to me about how she was having nightmares, constant nightmares about him. This is the reality that we're living in. She was, you know, going to suspend her studies that there's, we've reached a point where so many people don't realise how bad um you know, white supremacy and, and violence and racial violence is, has, is happening. There's more awareness about what's happening to Indigenous Australians, but they're still having to, to fight for the space to get, to get Australia to wake up to what's happening. You know, the stolen generation, I just read another article this morning about how that's still happening. Um, so I think complacency, the complacency, um, and I don't know if it's, you know, don't, don't know and don't care which one it is, complacency or apathy or both, but I think the, the way forward, because I'm not a pessimist, I think the way forward is better literacy, better understanding of what race means, about what white supremacy is. It's, you know, it's not about attacking people with white skin. A lot of times when we talk about race, it gets drilled down to prejudice. Um, and it's not about that. It's about systems and structures. And I just think we need so much more work in schools and universities to really understand what, what race and prejudice mean and what racism is so that we can actually start to have these conversations. It's not just about somebody being spat at on a, on a bus or public transport. That gets a lot of attention. But what's far more insidious is when you have politicians enabling this kind of violence because no one would dare do that if there wasn't a climate where this sort of thing is becoming normalised. And that's the problem. As you said, once upon a time to compare anything to what was happening in Nazi Germany, it would have been considered extreme. But, I, you know, I, I remember vividly a quote from a student I interviewed in a, in a school in the hills a year ago for my research, and she said, I saw Blair Cottrell, who's a Nazi, an Australian Nazi, on television, on Sky News, and she said, I didn't even feel surprised that he was on or shocked. And she said, and that's kind of the world I'm growing up in. And that just really gutted me. I remember how much that floored me hearing her say that, that it had become so normalised. And I think we really need to push back. For me, the way I push back is writing. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful tool to be able to do that. Now, I asked this question with my devil's advocate hat very firmly on. A common criticism you read on forums, and I advise anyone who's interested in reading forums, I suggest you don't because it just infuriates. Like, just as you never read the, the comments on YouTube, that's just a, that's always a yeah. mistake. But when people say being Muslim isn't a race, you can't call it racism. What's going on there? Okay, well, I almost did a whole PhD about that and now you've done, made it the last question of a podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> oh, okay, um, how can I simplify this? Okay, so it's, it comes from a common misconception that there is such a thing as races, okay? The idea that there is scientifically an idea of separate races was actually debunked in the 30s. Okay, but it, the, the, it's lingered since then. So there are ethnic groups, there are cultural groups, sure. But the idea that we actually have separate scientific biological races, biological racism, that's gone. 
um, that there's no, there's no actual scientific um, basis for that. So, but there is still obviously people who perceive others and racialize them. And that's what, that's what's happening to Muslims. Muslims are racialized. They are homogenized into one group where Muslims are considered to all think the same, act the same, believe in the same thing. Anything they do is, is immediately assumed to be because they are Muslim. So they don't have the freedom to act without constantly having it associated with some higher purpose of being a Muslim. And I found this quite often in my research where, for example, I would speak to a shop owner um, in a seaside town. I did some, some, some work there and he would say, oh, the Muslims come in and, you know, they do this and that and these Muslim young kids and he owned a boat hire um, and he was just going off about these Muslim kids. And then I asked him some questions about some other customers um, and he never said those Anglo kids, even though he was describing their bad behaviour as well. And that's the distinction, the idea that you can put a circle around a group and say that they're all acting and thinking in the same way and then you then you attack them and treat them because they are Muslim, because of that label. That's a very simplified answer. So it's not about... The, the fact is if I'm a Muslim and I'm wearing a hijab or a Muslim man is where it has a beard, um, you know, or has the name Muhammad that becomes the same as having black skin that comes becomes the same as having you know the so-called jewish hooked nose that jews were constantly degraded and demonized because of their physical features the hijab stands in for those sorts of physical attributes and that's how you become racialized because at the moment in in america we're saying that the face mask has now become a a signal if you like a political signal so people wearing face masks are going to certain areas and being harassed for wearing a face mask and other people who aren't wearing them are going to certain areas and being hounded out of shops because they aren't wearing one is that just the same thing taking a different form in a sense it's a really good uh, example that makes the point about how how clothes how appearance signifies something else it becomes a stand-in for something else it becomes loaded with a political weight and the face mask is really interesting because for example in france it's um illegal to wear a face a face veil the niqab so muslim women are not allowed to wear the niqab um but you have to wear a mask in some in some places so it's just interesting how it's not the actual physical object or material itself it's what it symbolizes so we did a, these all these memes as part of our um some activism a few years ago it was like is that person um a muslim terrorist or a hipster you know so the whole idea of the beard so you know like the way that certain identities become demonized and loaded with with these sorts of menacing threatening messages and others don't so it's a product of how society interprets and then projects these things onto other people. And the, the fact that people who are, people like Blair Cottrell are wearing, um, wearing a face mask to avoid identification, but while they protest at women wearing their niqab, yeah, it's an interesting exactly. kind of irony, isn't it? Um, <laughs> look, Rhonda, thank you so much. Let's clear that up. I hope you know I was only being a, um, a devil's advocate there. Uh, I know, of course. <laughs> uh, there was a book written when I was writing my current book, I was looking at, you know, Trump and there was a book written called On Bullshit. And it was the idea that, you know, a liar still is invested in the truth. They just, you know, tell a lie. So they pretend that they're telling the truth, but they're actually lying. But somebody like Trump doesn't care if it's true or not. So it's a disregard for truth. And I think that's really scary. Um, lying, of course, and, and false news is, you know, false sort of falsifying reality is awful. But when we're in a situation where there's actually no, dis no regard for what 
truth is. And you can actually say, I don't believe it. You know, I've got my own version of events. I've got my own, my own information, my own set of facts. <laughs> what did Kellyanne Conway call them? Um, alternative facts. That's, there you go, alternative facts. That's the one that I had forgotten. Mind blank. That's exactly it. So when you're dealing in a world now of alternative facts, I mean, I mean, your podcast, this podcast is to young people. You know, this is a situation we're in. The world is screwed up because of that. And, you know, what we need is, I mean, it's unfair on young people that they're inheriting this. Mm. Um, but that's why... I so believe in the power of writing and reading. Um, you know, I've been an activist for about 20 years now and I was actually looking through my old stuff the other day at articles and, and letters that I had written about Palestine and about Muslims um, in the 1990s, late 1990s, and in about the first Aladdin movie, the first Disney Aladdin cartoon, um, and then, you know, early 2000s, you know, rejected letters, you know, trying to get my voice out there. Now we have so many more opportunities to do that. So I think things have come a long way, but there's just so much work to do. But we're slowly, we're slowly, you know, pushing, pushing at it. I, I just think we need a revolution, but, you know. <laughs> Speaking of work to do, I'm sure you've got plenty of it, so I'll let you go. But um, Randa Abdel Fattah, thank you so much for speaking with us today and we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Uh,